Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 to, uh, verse 3 to 10 this evening. Now, um, this week, if you've kept your eye on the news, you'll have noticed this week marks the 25th anniversary of the National Lottery in the UK. And uh, the National Lottery gives you a 1 in 45 million chance of perhaps winning um, several million pounds uh, straight into your bank account. Um, it's not the, the best odds for any sort of gambling game. Uh, you're more likely to be crushed by a meteor, apparently, than, uh, than winning the National Lottery. You're, you're five times more likely to, to be crushed by a falling aeroplane or be in an aeroplane accident. Uh, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than winning the National Lottery. And yet, there are millions of people every single week who are willing to put quite substantial amounts of money on trying to win the lottery. Um, not too long ago, I used to work with a guy who would put £20 per week into playing the lottery. Uh, that's £1,000 a year. Why is it that so many people are willing to put so much money into a game that really they're never going to win? Well, the game feeds off, doesn't it? It feeds off a desire to get rich quick. It feeds off a love of money. And the reason that the National Lottery, even though its odds are way out there, even though it's so slim a chance... Even though so many people play it, it's because this desire, this love for money, is almost ubiquitous. Almost every person has a desire to have a little bit more money. Who would say no, really, to an extra pile of cash? And that desire isn't just played on by the National Lottery. That desire, that love for money, infiltrates almost every area of life. Many areas of life. It infiltrates, for example, um, our workplaces. It's often the salary, which is the key negotiating point for a, for a job, despite many, many studies showing that actually salary is not the most significant factor in whether you enjoy that job or whether you get job satisfaction in that place. Yet salary is the key negotiating factor. It, it, it influences the way we run our families whether you've got one parent at home or whether two parents go out to work, uh, what the child is brought up to value and to love. It will influence their education and the way they set themselves up for the rest of their life. Uh, the love of money will influence the general election in a few weeks. Take a note of how many of the policies, how much of the manifestos are written in such a way to describe to you, the voter, how your life will be financially better off if you vote for party A rather than party B. And this love of money even influences the church. And that's what Paul's picking up on in chapter 6, verse 3 to 10 of 1 Timothy. He starts with a warning against false teachers. Verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. There are some people in the church who teach false doctrines. How do you detect a false doctrine? Or well, Paul's, Paul's implying that you detect a false doctrine when it disagrees with what I've told you. Timothy, when it disagrees with sound teaching, with godly teaching, Paul is happy to describe his own teaching to Timothy as even the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's happy to describe it as godly. And when you get people who come in and teach things that are contrary to that teaching, those people are false teachers. Watch out for them. But those people are not just mistaken. They've not just been poorly taught. They've not just got the wrong end of the stick. Those false teachers have false motives. They are described, verse 4, as being conceited. That is, they have an excessive pride in themselves. They think they are all this. They think they are the ones to listen to. They take pride in themselves. Verse 4, their teaching, their attitude towards life results in envy, in strife, in malicious talk. That's a big signal as to what motivates them in life. Their desire is to get on top. Their desire is to win. Their desire is to be known as the supreme. And when there's others who come in to compete with that, you get this envy. You get this strife, arguing, fighting. You get this malicious talk trying to put others down. And these people, verse 5, think that godliness is a means to financial gain. There is that love of money. These teachers are not teaching for the sake of pointing people to God. They're not teaching for the sake of glorifying Christ. Their aim is to glorify themselves. Their aim is self-exaltation. Look at me. Respect me. Honour me. Lift me up. Give me the glory. Give me the material wealth. Give me all the goodness. Why else would these people be envious? What other cause is there for their malicious behaviour if not to put themselves above all others? You know, when Paul found himself in competition in his godliness, in his preaching of the word, it didn't result in him being envious. It didn't result in him trying to put others down. His response was, let them preach. Let them preach. It's not about me. It's about Christ being glorified. When these people come into competition with others, their response is, got to get rid of them. Got to stamp them down. I've got to be top dog. And that shows what really is motivating them. Their motivation is for self-exaltation. So, they consider, uh, when they consider godliness to be a source of financial gain, this godliness that they have is not really true godliness. Uh, Paul describes it as godliness, almost as uh, tongue-in-cheek, you might say. Uh, godliness, in inverted commas. Paul's already described to us in 1 Timothy what true godliness is. That was back in chapter 3, verse 16. A real key verse of the book that we've looked at a few times as we've been going through. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Paul says the mystery of godliness is about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This godliness that the false teachers have has almost nothing to do with the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their godliness is actually just religious behaviour. It's actually just turning up and, and preaching. It's actually just teaching others and trying to get a a bit of a cult following. 
their godliness is abstaining from, from certain foods and preventing people from marrying. Their godliness is having a special knowledge that they preserve for themselves. Their godliness is seeking to have the best grasp of controversial quarrels. It's nothing at all to do with exalting Christ. It's nothing at all to do with presenting him as the Lord. It's nothing at all to do with presenting his crucifixion and his resurrection. You know, this pattern of false godliness is still around in the church today in two significant areas where you can spot it. One is the multitude of men and women around the globe who preach and teach a false gospel. When we consider them to be around the globe, we might consider our we're safe because the danger is out there. But in today's world, those who are around the globe preaching and teaching these false gospels are then also beamed into our homes on the TV, sent to us through the radio waves, or even picked up on the internet. And their motive in preaching and teaching this false gospel is for their own reputation. Their motive is to stir up controversy. Their motive is to get the most view count on YouTube. Their motive is to exert influence and gain a following in order to have power for themselves. And often their motive, quite blatantly and openly, is to pursue financial gain for themselves. There are these sorts of teachers all around the world. There are these sorts of teachers that can be picked up almost anywhere on the internet. And the difficulty is, how do we assess their teaching? How do we assess whether they're true teachers or false teachers? Well, one way, of course, is assessing their teaching against the teaching that Paul gives us in his letters. If it disagrees with what Paul lays out for us in 1 Timothy and other parts of the New Testament, if it disagrees with this teaching, then we know them to be false teachers. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's quite difficult to weigh up what a person is teaching compared to what the Bible teaches. Sometimes it can take quite a long time of listening before we realise that actually this person is off kilter. So how else do we spot whether a person is a true teacher or a false teacher? Well, Paul has shown us in these verses that not only will their teaching be false, but also their motivation will be false. Their motivation will not be for the glory of Christ. Their motivation will be for the glory of self. And so instead of just looking at their doctrines and what they teach, look also at their life and how they live. That's one argument for the importance of being part of a local church, not just depending on teachers on the internet who can teach you what the, what the Bible says. Because you can't always see the lives and the lifestyles of those people who speak on the internet. But if you are part of a local church, you are observing the lives and the witness of the people who are teaching you. People like myself and Joseph who teach week by week. People within the church who run home groups and Bible studies. You can see what their motivations are. And that helps you work out whether these people are teaching sound doctrines or whether they are teaching false doctrines. That's one area of false godliness in the church. But also false godliness 
Isn't it a temptation for each one of us? False godliness that doesn't pursue Christ, Christ's glory, but godliness that pursues our own glory. Isn't that a temptation for you and me? For us, it's unlikely to be a temptation that causes us to seek money. But it could be a temptation that causes us to seek reputation. We do our service in the church in a way that many other people can see us. In a way that we get respect and thanks for. Perhaps we come to the prayer meeting and we're able to pray extravagant and elaborate prayers, knowing that in our own private times of prayer, our prayers are dead and dull. Our prayer life is but a show. A show in order to win the reputation of others. Win the respect of others. Perhaps we like to to present a certain maturity that we feel we have. And yet in reality, our maturity can be based so much on certain knowledge of the Bible. Trivial things that we've picked up about what it says and what it doesn't say. When actually the Bible says true maturity is knowing by practice how to put sin to death and how to walk in step with the Spirit. When our religious duty is paraded before the church, Jesus tells us we receive our full reward in that moment. We receive our full reward from the recognition and praise that we may or may not gain from the people who see it. And this type of religion that is paraded before others in order to win respect and honour for ourselves is not true godliness. Again, chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, True godliness is defined not by how we conduct ourselves or glorify ourselves. True godliness is defined by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who left behind the glory and the honour of heaven in order to become a creature. The one who lived in obscurity, not in fame, not in reputation. The one who lived a life of service to others. The one who remained faithful through all of his rejection, even to the point of death. The one who was vindicated by the Spirit, by God. The one who was raised by God. The one who was shown to be the Lord over all. The one who was given all authority, not the one who grasped authority for himself. Jesus Christ is the pattern of true godliness. And it's that pattern that he calls each one of us to. True godliness is about the exaltation of Christ, not about the exaltation of self. And just like the false teachers deny the exaltation of Christ, just as they deny the glory going to Christ, so we too face a similar temptation. However, true godliness is not all just loss and hardship. True godliness is not just loss and hardship. True godliness does bring great benefit. Look at verse 6 now. Chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Those false teachers, they were seeking a certain gain. 
But the gain that they were seeking was the wrong gain. Godliness does bring gain. But it's not financial gain. It's not the gain of a better reputation. True godliness brings a different type of gain. Verse 7 begins with the word for. It means that verse 7 is going to be the explainer to verse 6. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. What lasting impact does money have on your life? When I say lasting, I mean eternal. What did you start with in terms of your standing before God? You brought nothing into the world. Unlike Christ, he came into the world with all the honour and the glory of God himself. You brought nothing in. What influence, what help will your money be to you on the day of judgment? It will do nothing for you. No matter how much money or reputation you have here today, it will be of no help on the day of judgment. You can take nothing out of this world. You brought nothing in, you can take nothing out. All that money offers, any benefit it gives you, is for a short period of time. For a period of time. Any benefit that money gives you cannot last into eternity. Godliness, true godliness, seeks a greater gain than what money can ever give. True godliness, remember, recognises that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, taken up into glory. And a life of true godliness that follows that same pattern of life that Christ lived. Humility, service, faithfulness. A pattern of life that follows Christ is a life that will also share in the glory that Christ received. That's one of the wonderful promises of the Gospel. You will not just be saved from the difficulties of this world. You will be given you will share in the glory that Christ himself received. Compare the prize of these two types of godliness that we have in view in chapter 6. On the one hand, you've got the false godliness, the empty religion. What is their prize? Their prize is more knowledge. But actually, we're told, these people know nothing. Their prize is more honour in this world. In actual fact, what they get is a life of constant friction and malicious talk towards them. Their prize is satisfaction with what this world offers. In actual fact, what they get is envy towards other people. It never satisfies. Their prize is financial gain. They might get a bit of that, but actually they've been robbed. They've been robbed of the truth. That's the prize of the false godliness. But what about true godliness? True godliness lives a life of obscurity in order to be those who will inherit the earth. You live a life of being nobody in order to eventually 
come into possession of all that exists. True godliness suffers for a while, temporarily, in order to receive the prize of eternal glory. True godliness is willing to be a servant because it knows that one day we will rule over all. We will reign with Christ as kings. Do you see the difference in the two types of godliness? The one seeks a, seeks a prize that is on this earth. Reputation, honour, money. And it just is a wisp of smoke. It vanishes so quickly. The other is ready to forego some of those pleasures in view of the greater gain that is to come. And so by nature, this true godliness is a godliness that leads to contentment. It's a contented godliness by nature. If you have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Why would this godliness be content with such a meagre portion? Why would this godliness be content with perhaps only just getting by on what you need? Because the goal of this true godliness, the prize that it's seeking, is not in this earth. It's not a bigger house. It's not a better car. It's not a better job. It's not a nicer family. The goal of this true godliness is an eternal goal. And so it's willing to forego some of the pleasures that this world offers in order to take hold of the prize that Christ offers for all of eternity. Is your godliness the type of godliness that seeks its good here on earth? Is your religion the type of religion that seeks reputation and money and honour? Is your service for Christ the the type of service that, that seeks to get better things here and now? Or is your godliness the type of godliness that has its eyes fixed upon eternity and what we will be given then? Ask yourselves these questions as you try and consider that. If there was a visitor come from another planet, looked at what you spend your money on, how much would he have to be told that there is value in? And how much would he be able to see Or this is valuable. How much do you spend upon brands and jewellery and designer names? Things that some alien wouldn't necessarily see as valuable. How much do you spend upon hobbies and niche areas? How much would he have to be told, no, this is valuable? And how much would he see is valuable? Oh, he's spending it on food and clothing and shelter and safety. When was the last time that your generosity was truly sacrificial? When was the last time your generosity towards another person caused you to go without? How long could you serve in the church for without being thanked for the job that you were doing? Are you working for glory here on earth or are you storing up for yourself 
treasure in heaven. Are you seeking a bigger bank account, a better reputation, a more honourable name? Or are you seeking to share the glory of Christ with him? Now the aim of these questions and this part of the sermon is, is not to guilt trip us. I hope and I expect that, that some of what I've said has been convicting and caused us to think about what we do with our money and our time and the way we serve in church. But the aim is not to, to guilt trip us. The aim is to show the emptiness of the empty prize. The aim is to show the emptiness of seeking glory here on earth. The aim is to show the emptiness of this false godliness. And so if you do feel challenged, what should you do? Well, don't necessarily go home and just increase your direct debit to the church. That's, that's not the answer. That's false godliness. That's just doing your religion in order to gain reputation or respect for yourself. The answer, if you feel convicted about these things, is to look to Christ. Look and consider again. Look at the promises that he has made you. Remind you, remind yourself of what he has offered you in the gospel. And look at this world and all of its glitter and gold. Look at this world through the lens of the gospel. See that yes, there are good things here, but this world is mortal. It's passing away. It's here for a short time and then it will be gone. Set your hearts, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Because that's the only place that you will find lasting treasure. That's the only place you'll find true satisfaction. And if you can take hold of that, if you can take hold of those promises, then there really is great gain for you. Now, whatever type of godliness you consider yourself to have, there is a warning for us in verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the warning. Watch out for the love of money. Watch out for the love of money. And this warning is for every single one of us, no matter how strong your faith is. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is a trap. It is a temptation. It is a reason that some people have even left the faith. Some people that clearly Paul knew of, perhaps some people that you know of, who have left the faith because they loved money. Now be careful with verse 10. It doesn't say that money is evil. If it did say that, the answer would be simple. Just go and get rid of all your money. Sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say the love of money is the only root of all evil. There are other ways for people to sin. And if we read it carefully, we'll notice 
Um, it doesn't say in this verse, the love of money is evil. And the love of money is evil, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, so you might assess your life this evening. You might look at the way you act, the way you spend your money, the way you live, the way you relate to other people. And you might look over your life and think to yourself, love of money seems not to have a strong grip on me. I seem to be free from the love of money. Perhaps I love other things, but, but love of money isn't that one. This verse is telling you, you're not, the fruit is not the love of money. The fruit is some other sin. So when you look over your life and you see the way you act and you see some of your motives, you might not necessarily see, ah, there's the love of money acting. Love of money is under the surface. Love of money is the root. What you might see in your life is greed. You might see lies. You might see anxiety. You might see discontentment. You might see unbelief. You might see a struggle with your identity as a Christian. You might see a fear to share the gospel, perhaps at work or some other places. Those are the fruits that you will see. And this verse is telling you, it could be that of those fruits you see, the root is a love of money. You might not be able to see the love of money. You see these other sins. But the love of money could be there. And that's why this verse is a warning to each and every one of us. No matter our spiritual strength or health, no matter what we've pinned our hopes on, no matter what type of godliness we are living. The danger of the love of money is that it so often lies beneath the surface of what we're doing. And it isn't spotted until you begin to root up other sins. You might not notice it until you begin to decide, right, I'm going to try and deal with my anxiety. And you realise, hang on, my anxiety is being caused by something else. You might not spot it until you decide to rectify the tensions in your marriage. Hang on, these tensions are being caused by something else. You might not spot it until you're ready to work at setting your identity in Christ and dealing with some of your insecurities. Hang on, there's something else that's causing these problems. How do we guard against such a silently invasive sin? How do we guard against it? Let the fruit of your life flow from the life of Christ. Let Christ be the root that leads to the fruit of your deeds. No branch bears fruit by itself. Remain in Christ and you will bear much fruit, he tells us. Remain in Christ. Believe in him. Trust in his promises. Hope in his future. Let the goal for your life be heavenly, lasting, eternal gain. Avoid the goal of earthly, temporary gain. Be ready to accept the pattern of life that Christ lived. 
in order that you will also share in the same glory that Christ received. The way to guard against this love of money is to love Christ more. Our last hymn, I hope, will help us to do that. We're going to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. The hymn gets us to think about Christ and his death and resurrection. The the hymn gets us to think about the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And it helps us to realise that when we get that in focus, all of this world's temporary gains, all of the richest gain I can find here, we then count as but loss for the sake of knowing him. Let's stand and sing this wonderful hymn together.